Hello and welcome to the Cloister. This is the third part in our series on the rule of St Benedict, led by the monks at Glenstall Abbey. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you may wish to begin there. We started our series by looking at the prologue of the rule, and then we explored the role of the abbot. This week, Father Henry looks at chapter 7 of the rule, which is the longest, and is on humility. I hope these gentle reflections continue to be a blessing to you. Chapter 7 of the Rule of St. Benedict is the longest and one of the richest of the chapters of that rule. The chapter is on humility, and it presents a distillation or the essence of what has been said in the prologue to the rule and in the first six chapters. The remaining chapters of the rule deal with practical matters such as the arrangement of the divine office, the meals of the community, the daily manual labour, in fact, every area of life in the monastery. But that does not mean that in these chapters St. Benedict deals only with the nuts and bolts of everyday life. And indeed, many of the 67 chapters are full of refining repetitions or developments of his teaching in the prologue and the first six chapters. In the prologue to the rule, St. Benedict invites the reader to incline the ear of your heart to the teaching of the Master. The prologue speaks of concepts, attitudes and actions such as laborious obedience, return to the Father, taking up the strong, shining weapons of obedience, opening our eyes to the divine light, and not hardening our hearts. This complex of concepts, attitudes, and behaviour is reflected in St. Benedict's elaboration of the Twelve Steps of Humility in Chapter 7. Before taking a look at these steps, it is useful to say a few words about the ladder image and about humility in general. The Jacob's Ladder episode from chapter 28 of the book of Genesis inspired numerous symbolic interpretations in ancient Christianity. In most cases, the ladder, or sometimes a staircase, is symbolic of the connection between heaven and earth between God and human beings. It represents progress, ascension, and spiritual passage through the levels of initiation. St. Benedict is in this tradition, but he adapts the image for his own purposes. If Jacob saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder, Benedict's focus is on the individual monk. While Undoubtedly believing in and promoting spiritual progress, Benedict is under no illusion that such progress can be made by a straight-line ticking of the boxes of appropriated concepts, inculcated attitudes and personal behaviour. In other words, one can rise and fall on the ladder. Where one is at any given time on the ladder, will depend on how one has grown in and into humility. Here, as in all the rest of the rule, Benedict stresses the importance of concrete physical and spiritual reality, the sides of the ladder being one's body and soul, 
as well as the importance of time. The monk is given the span of his life to climb up and down the ladder. In one of his poems, Patrick Kavanagh described himself as disliked by many because he made men feel as small as they really are, which is as great as God had made them. Without a doubt, the link between humility and what is proposed by many as the root word humus is familiar to all gardeners and has perhaps been done to death. But most clichés are clichés because they are true. Cardinal Newman's phrase, the facts are kind, sums up much of what humility is about. Before a doctor can prescribe a drug or a therapy, she or he must make a diagnosis, must ascertain, so far as possible, the facts. Similarly, the Christian is called to ascertain the facts about him or herself. One of the more obvious practices in spiritual ascertainment is the practice of examination of conscience. This examination can be a more or less honest exercise, more or less superficial, or more dangerously, a neurotic obsession with oneself and one's pathologies, real or imagined. Real humility is, of course, much more. The expanding heart, which is the building site of the Christian work in progress, tries, with the help of its permanent resident, Jesus Christ, to acquire the habit not only of self-knowledge, but to link this knowledge with acceptance of responsibility, admission of guilt where this is appropriate, but also with an awareness of what is good and growing in oneself. But this growth, of course, as grace, as gift, appropriated, that is made one's own, in and through loving cooperation with the giver of that gift, the Lord will not spurn a humble, contrite heart. The business of living a life of love is too serious in the real sense of the term to be reduced to trivial self-importance, to always having to be right and to be known to be always right, to fooling oneself about one's virtues or even one's vices. This is why monks are called to live under a rule and an abbot. If these and the community in which humility has to become a concrete reality do not foster, do not inculcate this attitude, this habitus of the heart, then they are failing in one of their fundamental duties. They are missing out on one of their most constructive possibilities. And with all the necessary adjustments to circumstances, these principles apply to all the baptised. But let's now look at the actual steps as outlined by St. Benedict. The first is to keep the fear of the Lord before one's eyes. This is not a servile fear. Sin is a reality, and punishment is too. St. Benedict's fear is the loving awe of a child for a loving father. This is a secure, 
trusting awareness and growing familiarity of the son or daughter whose heart is expanding. Next, Benedict speaks of the submission of one's will to the Lord. Here, the model is Christ himself. This is a free and generous submission, a gift of self. But before one can give it, one must have a self to give. Essential to this giving is obedience, the third rung on the ladder. Here, Benedict is not speaking about a brainless, cadaver obedience, but a capacity and willingness to listen, to take to heart, and to think and act in accordance with the divine will as it presents itself in the circumstances of one's life. This listening, this taking to heart and acting according to the divine will, is fleshed out on the fourth rung, that the monk, meeting in this obedience with difficulties and contradictions and even injustice, should, with a quiet mind, hold fast to patience and enduring neither tire nor run away. Humility may or may not sound wonderful as an idea, even an ideal, but it is acquired only by practice. The concreteness mentioned above happens, it takes place, takes shape in the real situations of the everyday. St. Benedict is very clear that it is in the everyday that we can really share in the sufferings of Christ, our model, guide and our maker possible. Set piece, spectacular humiliations may make great theatre, but they do not necessarily, if at all, result in genuine humility. Nor should amongst obedience the difficulties and contradictions he experiences be an excuse for bullying, least of all by power crazed or insensitive superiors. The fifth rung of humility is humble confession of one's faults in thought, deed and word. This is not a neurotic navel-gazing and fearful compilation of a laundry list of wrongdoing and wrong-thinking. Rather, it is a living, realistic acceptance of responsibility for how one deals and lives with the gift of grace. This is more than an individualistic, self-focused project of perfection, but its nature includes all those with whom one lives. Our consumerist society would not be terribly happy with the sixth rung, that the monk be content with the meanest and worst of everything and have a realistic scepticism about his own worth and importance. This says that there are more important things than food, drink, clothes, gadgets, travel, possessions, power. It also says that one needs to learn that one is not the centre of the universe. At the same time, it does not mean a false, uriah heap-like running down of oneself. It is profoundly realistic. This spills over to the seventh rung, where the monk is told not just to talk about himself as being less than the centre of the universe and God's greatest gift to the human race, but actually to believe this. 
there is a healthy and necessary self-esteem, but this has to be based on reality. On the eighth rung, the monk is enjoined to do nothing except what is commended by the rule of the monastery and the example of superiors. This is not an attempt to infantilize or to gag the monks, but to make them aware that the monastic fraternity, like all communities, has its way of doing things and that one should avoid the temptation to become a lone ranger or a prima donna. Think before you speak or act. One does not always know best. This leads logically to the ninth rung of St. Benedict's Ladder, that the monk should curb his tongue, keep silence and speak only when spoken to. This is not a version of children should be seen not heard syndrome familiar to previous generations. It does mean that the monk should not be a chatterbox whose main currency in conversation is gossip or trivia. The tenth rung of the ladder, that the monk be not ready and prompt to laughter, owes much to a Roman idea of gravitas or seriousness. For the Romans, in order to be taken seriously, one had to think seriously, behave seriously, and above all, look serious. Fun persons, jokers or comedians, were commonly regarded as foolish or even as fools. For St. Benedict, the monk should be neither. This does not rule out a genuine sense of humour, intimately connected with the humus we spoke about earlier, but does demand discernment. It demands a kind of cop-on and knowing what is appropriate and when under the different circumstances of one's life. This is developed in the eleventh rung of the ladder, that a monk, when he speaks, do so gently and without laughter, humbly and seriously, in few and sensible words, and without clamour. I'd like to end by quoting in full what St. Benedict says about the twelfth and last rung of humility. But before doing so, I think it is important to return to the image of the ladder. The point was made that St. Benedict's ladder is not a programmatic, box-tinking device that guarantees automatic progress or arrival. Read carefully, each rung, as he describes it, can be seen to reflect or imply all the others. Rather, as in the reading of any book of scripture, one has to read it in the context or against the background of scripture as a whole. Similarly, each of the twelve rungs or steps has to be read bearing in mind the other eleven. It is also important to recognise that for St. Benedict one can at any time be on any one or more of the rungs. One can ascend or descend as our, we hope, expanding hearts and sensibilities ascend and descend. And so it's no surprise when reading about rung 12 that we at once recognise elements, ideas, concepts attitudes we have encountered on the other eleven rungs. St. Benedict says the following, The twelfth step of humility is that a monk not only be humble in heart, 
but also in his very body show humility to those who see him. That is, that in the liturgy, the work of God, in the oratory, in the monastery, in the garden, on the road, in the field or elsewhere, sitting, walking or standing, his head be always bent, his eyes cast down, accounting himself at all times as one convicted of his sins, and likewise accounting himself to be already presented before God's awe-inspiring judgment, always in his heart saying to himself what that publican in the gospel said with eyes fixed upon the ground. Lord, I, a sinner, am not worthy to lift up my eyes to heaven. And again with the prophet, bowed and humbled, I am on every side. When then the monk shall have ascended all these steps in humility, he will presently arrive at that love of God, which, being perfect, casts out all fear, and by means of which all that formerly he could not observe, but with much fearfulness, he will begin to keep without any difficulty, as if it were by habit become second nature, no longer through fear of hell, but for love of Christ, and a certain good habit and delight in virtue, the which the Lord will deign to manifest by the Holy Spirit to his labourer, now cleansed from vices and sins. Thank you for listening to The Cloister. New episodes are released fortnightly, and we hope that you will join us again soon. God bless.